Knowing God, Convocation Address, given at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in May of 1975 by the Reverend Dr. James I. Packer. Again, I count myself honored to be addressing you at this convocation. It being the last convocation of the academic year, and any invitation to give a convocation address being something of an honor. I have a fairly heavy sense of responsibility on my spirit as I seek to bring you something appropriate to the occasion this morning. When Dean Kerr sent me a little note about this occasion, I have the note in front of me, it began with the words, Regarding your sermon or lecture on knowing God, may I suggest the May 28th. Now, as you know, uncertainty is infectious. He didn't know whether I was going to deliver a sermon or a lecture. And as I came to think about it, his uncertainty infected me, and I found that I didn't know either. <laughs> because the theme is one on which either a sermon or a lecture would be appropriate. It's a theme which presents many theological problems, um, particularly so perhaps at this time, when the whole doctrine of the work of God in Revelation, making himself known to man, is in such turmoil. And equally, it's the central devotional theme of the whole Bible and simply cries aloud to be handled sermon style. Probably what I shall do is to fall uh, English in the English manner between the two extremes, between the two stools, as one might say. I am going to take a text, and I am going to move around in the book from which that text comes. At the same time, I'm going to handle some subjects which have, or some aspects of the subject, which have a devotional relevance, um, uh, sorry, which have an academic relevance, I'm trying to say, as well as a devotional relevance. I shall spray you with such insights as I have, even if some of what I say appears to be off the target, well, I hope that some of what I say will appear relevant to each single one of you. I take as text, reference text, I suppose one should call it, for we're going to move out and around it, the words of the Apostle John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 13. I write unto you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written unto you, little children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, senior Christians, mature Christians, because you know him. I write to you, little children, young Christians, because you know him. And between those two statements, you have this, I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. That's not a statement on a different point at all, as I hope to show you in a minute. In this verse, what John is celebrating 
and inviting his readers to celebrate afresh is the reality of their knowledge of God. And what is this? Well, life is relationships. So they tell us nowadays, and I believe that this is a real insight. And there are different sorts of relationships as between persons. Some are means to ends, like your relationship with the postman or the plumber. Some relationships between persons are ends in themselves, like your relationship with your wife or your husband or the person whom you're dating. C.S. Lewis, I think it was, who said that if a man courts and marries a girl for her money, well, we rightly say that he's mercenary and that he's cheapened the relationship. But that if he woos and marries a girl for herself, well, we regard that as noble and the act of a true lover. This is the biblical parallel, as we all know, in terms of which our knowledge of God is to be understood. It's a relationship with one who loves us. It's a relationship, therefore, which requires love from us. And, like other love relationships, it's, it has its own end in itself. We don't come to know God and to live in fellowship with God for the sake of something that is beyond God. No, we love and serve God and in that comprehensive sense know him for what he is and the relationship carries its own meaning in itself. Eternal life, you remember, was defined by the Lord Jesus Christ in his great high priestly prayer in terms of men knowing thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. To know the Father through the Son is to enjoy eternal life. To enjoy eternal life is what we are here for, and it's entirely in this relationship and the fulfilling of this relationship that eternal life is found and fulfilled. This is what the Savior is saying. And it seems to me right to spell it out in these terms, that God, who from all eternity is triune, tripersonal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in an endless fellowship of love together, God made us, and God redeemed us, now redeemed us, in order that we may share in that fellowship of the Trinity, that we may share in that eternal life of love. And this is how we should see our life and its end. When we say, God made us for himself, it's not simply to serve him, but it's also to enjoy him. And to enjoy God means to share in this fellowship of love, which continues from eternity to eternity, and which is the supreme, the supreme glory of God, just as it's going to be the supreme glory of those who actually become partakers of it. The meaning of living really is loving. That is the meaning of the life of God, and that is the meaning of the life of us made in his image 
and redeemed for his fellowship. And so John is proclaiming life's supreme glory when he writes to these groups of to these uh, Christians to whom his first letter was addressed and reminds them that they know God. And that his purpose in writing to them is to confirm them in the certainty that they know God and to lead them deeper into the knowledge of God. And I trust that we see our own life in exactly these terms. The goal of life for us, as for others, is to know God, to be found in Christ, to know Him, to know the Father through Him. This, I trust, is our life here and now, quite self-consciously. And this, I trust, is the hope that we cherish in our hearts, again, quite self-consciously. In the Christian world today, there are so many influences operating to encourage us to feel that achievement for God is more important than knowledge of God. Doing things for God matters more than having fellowship with God. And it simply isn't so. And the New Testament, if only we would hear it, makes it perfectly plain that it simply isn't so. Here is Paul, I'm in Philippians 3 now, illustrating my point. Paul, the great apostle, at full stretch to preach the gospel, but if asked what his 101 life activities as a minister of Christ amount to, and what indeed his life as a whole, shall I say, the 201 life activities in which he's engaged amount to, well, he boils it down by saying, one thing I do, just one thing, I forget the things that are behind, I press on to what lies ahead, my eyes are on the target, I'm straining towards the mark of the for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ. That's what I'm after, says Paul, to know him and to win him. Paul, if anyone, might surely have said, uh, my chief concern is to spread the gospel around the Mediterranean world. My chief concern is to plant, is to, is to plant as many churches as I can. The great task that God has entrusted to me fills all my thoughts and is the center of my ambition. But he doesn't say that. No, indeed he doesn't. When asked what it is that is the goal and center of his life, he focuses on his relationship with God in Christ. To know him, to win him, that's the one thing that I'm doing, says Paul. Everything else finds its meaning and its center and its focus in that. So we really are right at the heart of the matter when we think together about knowing God. This is what life is all about. God grant us to see it and then to hold fast to what we see. Now, there are different ways in which one can treat the theme of, the, of knowing God. One can put the accent on the noun. Oh, that's what I did in my book, actually, if you've seen my book. Knowing God, it's a unique sort of relationship, different from knowing anyone else. Special in so many ways. Uh, that's the line of thought that I follow through in the book. I'm not doing that this morning. Why should I jeopardize the prospect of tomorrow's sales? Um, 
What I'm saying this morning is something different and complementary. I'm putting the accent this morning on the participle, or the gerund, as I suppose a grammarian would call it. No, it's not. It's just a participle, isn't it? Knowing God. Knowing. Knowing him as opposed to missing the fullness of our relationship with him. I want to talk about the relationship. I want to say a little about the key to the relationship, and I want to say rather more about the growth of the relationship. Thinking of it as the most significant and the central relationship of the Christian's life, I want to set before you a few thoughts which I hope, between them, will help to ensure that you and I don't miss the fullness of it, that you and I aren't distracted from that which ought to be central. So first let me speak of the key to the relationship and make the point which only needs a sentence or two, I think, for it's a well-known and familiar point. Remember that the key to this relationship is faith. Knowledge of God is a faith relationship, as the theologians nowadays love to put it. And faith, we know, is more than mere credence, more than mere orthodoxy. Knowing God is more than knowing about God. Knowing God is a matter of a knowing God is a matter of faith taking off from mere knowledge about and moving into a direct relationship of trust and action. Faith is analyzed differently by the two great New Testament theologians, Paul and John. The analyses are complementary, but they are different. When Paul talks about faith, the thought in his mind appears always to be that of conviction, issuing in commitment. Jesus is Lord, and so faith shows itself to be real faith, by responsive commitment to God in Christ and then working by love. You apprehend the love of God in the gospel. In faith you respond to that love by the mercies of God, trusting the Christ who died for you. You present yourself to the Lord, body and soul. That's your spiritual service, says Paul in Romans 12. And henceforth, it's the love of Christ that constrains and controls you. He, by his redeeming love, has established himself as your Lord and Master. Now, in response to his redeeming love, you love him and others for his sake, and you serve him as the expression of your love. That's how Paul, as it seems to me, presents faith all through. Here in John, however, in this first epistle particularly, the analysis is slightly different, though not in any way contradicting what Paul has said. John analyzes faith in terms of conviction. Yes, he starts in the same place as, uh, as Paul does, conviction of the truth of the apostolic charisma. But then for John, it's commission, it's co sorry, it's conviction issuing. How do you like my pronunciation of the word? You want me to say issuing, do you? All right, let me say it. Um, its conviction issuing in conflict. And it's the fact that the conflict has become a reality which shows that faith is a reality. That this is genuine faith 
as distinct from phony and empty talk. This is the point to which I think our minds are directed by the way in which, in between the reference to you fathers who know him and you little children who know him, you've got the reference to the young men who have overcome the evil one. To have overcome the evil one is to have recognized the antithesis between the way of God and the way of Satan, which one recognizes by faith, and to have engaged in the conflict in which every Christian is inevitably engaged if he's going to follow the way of God and avoid being entrapped into the way of the devil. Elsewhere in the epistle, Paul analyzes the conflict in terms of fighting sin and Satan on the one hand, and fighting the world and Satan on the other hand, for Satan, according to John, stands behind and encourages and manipulates all the impulses to sin, to, wrong, to moral wrongdoing, which spring up in our hearts, and all the influences to go the way of the world, to which we are constantly subject as we walk through the wilderness of this world. Look at chapter 3, verses 6 to 9, where, Paul is, where John is talking about the conflict against indwelling sin in the Christian life. And he says most robustly, you know the verses, they sometimes cause people problems because people have not understood that the present tense in the Greek is expressing a habitual course of action uh, rather than a single, um, rather than focusing on any single action or event. John says, 1 John 3, 6, Whosoever abides in Christ doesn't sin, habitually, as a course of life. Whosoever sins has not seen him nor known him. Uh, my little children, let no man lead you astray. He that does righteousness as his course of life is the righteous person, even as he is righteous. He that does sin is from the devil. For the devil sins from the beginning. To this end was the Son of God manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is begotten of God does not sin. Again, habitually. Because God's seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he's begotten of God. In other words, he's a new creature. He's been remade. It is not now in his nature to commit himself habitually to the way of sin, just as previously, prior to his regeneration, it was not in his nature to do the will of God. But he's a new creature now. Whoso abides in him, says Paul, doesn't, uh, says John, doesn't sin. What John is calling here, call it, calling on his readers here to do, is to acknowledge the antithesis between the way of God's law and the way of sin, which was defined in verse 4 as lawlessness, and consciously and deliberately to identify with the will of God every time. This involves conflict. Temptation is real, John knows that. Conflict is inescapable, then, if you're going the way of God. But the person who's a real believer recognizes this, maintains the conflict, identifies with the way of God, and expresses his own new nature in not committing sin. And this is one of the dimensions of overcoming the evil one 
which is at the heart of the life of faith as John understands it. And the other dimension is referred to at the end of chapter 5, where John says in verse 4, Whatsoever is begotten of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And who is he that overcomes the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. There's the conviction, and out of the conviction comes the conflict. And the conflict is a matter of challenging the influences of the world, mankind ganged up against God, we live in the world and we know these pressures just as the men of John's day did. You resist those influences, says John, by faith. That's the understanding. And this is what shows that your faith is genuine and that your knowledge of God is therefore a reality. Uh, the other side of the matter is that he who sins doesn't know God. He who follows the way of the world doesn't know God as John says in a number of different ways in this letter. The whole world, remember, verse 19 of chapter 5, lies in the evil one. But we are of God, so we don't go the way of the world, which has Satan as its chief uh, supporter and advocate. Let's take this to heart. Francis Schaeffer has made the point very strongly in all sorts of ways in his books that we cannot go one step of the Christian life right, or we cannot understand one iota of Christian truth right, unless we are conscious of the antithesis between this which God has shown us and that which sin and the world would suggest as an alternative. And Christian living, according to Schaeffer's analysis, is essentially a matter of working out the antithesis. And in saying this, Schaeffer is being fundamentally very Johannine indeed, and the point is right and it's true. And we do well to search ourselves and ask ourselves, do I understand the Christian life in terms of antithesis and conflict with sin, sin in the form of temptation, and the world? world in the form of the world in the form of seductive influences if I'm not seeing my Christian life in these terms and living it in these terms the chances are that I haven't yet seen anything very clearly at all well this is fundamental to knowing God for those who know God must acknowledge the antithesis and labor to work it out in their own life of faith and obedience that's the key to the relationship then, faith, and faith for John means conflict. Now a word about the growth of the relationship. The relationship of knowing God, like any other relationship between persons, should deepen and develop. Relationships that stagnate are not to be commended. No personal relationship should be simply stagnating. As I read my Bible, it's borne in on me that our relationship of knowing God de um, deepens and develops according to um, deepening and advance on four fronts. Uh, the deepening of the relationship, we may say, depends upon four distinct factors, to each of which we need to pay constant attention. 
and I want just quickly to run through these. Factor number one, understanding. We get understanding from the book of God. We must have understanding about, on the one hand, God and his ways, and on the other hand, our life and our calling, if our knowledge of God is to go on and deepen. If we misunderstand God and his ways, if we have wrong expectations about our life and our calling, well, our relationship with God, our knowledge of him will suffer. Uh, this is the point at which I hope that my book puts a little might into the treasury, because it's some aspects of this understanding that I wrote the book to convey. About God and his ways, it seems to me that the one great truth that we've got to remember, and I can only just say this in a sentence and then move on, the one great truth which underlies all the other particular truths is this, that God, God's purpose with us is quite simply to have the whole of us. He is jealous for our affection, he wants our hearts, he wants all our loyalty, he wants to be all in all to us, and he will ruthlessly strip us of everything else in which we might have uh, trusted and to which we might have given our hearts, so that in fact we are left with nothing save himself. And the whole doctrine of grace tells us how he makes good this exclusive claim, this claim which is intolerant of rivalry uh, in our lives. He must have all the glory, Christ must have all the praise, the Lord must have all our love. This is the truth of truths about God's ways, and it's important that we should get it clear in our minds and never lose sight of it. Um, I try, I don't know how successfully, to say this in my book, and if maybe I don't say it well enough, well, you could get it by reading Mrs. Leach's books, because it's all there. As for ourselves, and what we need to know about ourselves and our calling, well, what I've said already indicates clearly enough, I think, what the central issue in our lives as we walk with God is always going to be. It's going to be this question of whether God has our heart. And there's a further complementary truth in the New Testament which we also need to be very clear on and again understand as underlying all particular truths about the right way in the Christian life. And that is this truth, that the pattern of Jesus' life, death and resurrection, is proclaimed as the pattern for ours. The sacrament of baptism exhibits it, Romans 6. Always, and in every particular, in every particular place where we find ourselves, or every particular task which we undertake for our Lord, one of the things that is always going on is more death with Christ, so that there may be more rising with Christ. Here let me refer you particularly perhaps to 2 Corinthians 4, 
We have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the excellent glory may be seen to be of God and not of ourselves. We which live are always being delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus may be manifest in our mortal flesh. This is the pattern, it's fulfilled with peculiar poignancy in the life of ministers of the gospel, but to some extent it's got to be fulfilled in the life of every Christian. What else did Jesus mean when he spoke of self-denial and taking up one's cross in order to follow him? So again and again, this is going to be the pattern and the shape of everything that happens. And God means it to be so. And we must understand this if we are to know God and walk with God and comprehend what he's up to in the way that he handles us and the situations that he leads us into. We can get it all from the Bible. And God grant that we will get it all from the Bible. This understanding is vital if our knowledge of God is to go on. And then I believe our knowledge of God depends on a second thing equally vital. And it may surprise you when I tell you what comes here, because this is something that I don't think we often enough think about. Second factor is imagination. And let me focus this more precisely. I am thinking of that aspect of our imagination which gives us our own self-image. Now, we all of us have got images of ourselves. The modern psychologists tell us this, and it's true. We see ourselves, we think of ourselves in certain imaginative terms. And with those imaginative terms goes, or, or go, a whole series of vibrations which repercuss on the way that we actually live. Um, in England, amongst certain small Calvinistic churches, um, there is a hymn book, um, Gadsby's Hymns, I don't suppose you've ever even heard of it over here, in which every hymn, almost without exception, proclaims the Christian a worm. And I have a friend who, when she was listening to uh, solemn but rather stodgy Calvinistic sermons in her early youth, used to enliven sermon time by looking through the hymn book and counting the number of times that the worm was mentioned. <laughs> well, I had a most fascinating lecture the other night from uh, Dr. Sproul, who for some reason, I didn't quite gather why, gather why, had recently jammed himself up on worms. Perhaps he brought it into his course. Those of you who were in the course will know. And he told me that... Um, there are about a million worms an acre on good ground in the USA and four million worms an acre on good ground in New Zealand and that uh, even an eighth of a worm if cut off from the, uh, the other seven-eighths can uh, keep itself going, you know, as worms do and that the longest worm in the world is no less than 11 feet long he looked at me and said, some worm and I said, yes, some worm <laughs> But when he'd done his act and told me all about worms, I still, <laughs> I still didn't find myself particularly wanting to be a worm. Um, and it seems to me that if Christians encourage each other to identify with worms, well, the vibrations will not be good. 
And the chances are that already by taking up with such uh, a lowly view of ourselves, we shall have programmed ourselves for failure in all sorts of ways in Christian living. Uh, because a low self-image, so the psychologists tell us, uh, is virtually a program for failure. Well now, what I want to say positively here is that the scripture, so much of which is written in highly imaginative terms, offers us fundamental self-images for seeing ourselves, thinking of ourselves, um, and viewing ourselves. Fundamental self-images which we need vitally to grasp and to hang on to and never to let go. And the basic one is simply this, that the Christian is a child of God. That's an imaginative picture, that's an image, as well as being a theological concept. Hang on to it. And every day as you get up in the morning, say to yourself, Hallelujah, I'm a child of God. And labor during the day to see yourself and think of yourself as a child of God, to rejoice in the love of your Heavenly Father, to remind yourself that you are under his care and his protection, and to go on your way rejoicing in the knowledge of this relationship. The filial relationship is the fundamental relationship for the Christian. John himself teaches this in this letter from which our text came, chapter 3, opening verses. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. And such we are. Beloved, now are we children of God, and we have a great hope before us. John wants his readers to rejoice in the knowledge that they are sons of God, in the understanding of their knowledge of God as precisely filial fellowship with a heavenly Father. And then that image of ourselves as, child, as children of God is to be buttressed by two other images which keep popping up in the New Testament, the thought of the Christian as pilgrim, this world not being the place where he really belongs, but he's traveling through this world to a better one. And with that you have the image of the Christian as a soldier, having to fight because he's up against opposition, and therefore unable to make any progress at any point without contending with that opposition and overcoming it. If you can see yourself, learn to see yourself imaginatively and to think of yourself every day and to make this basic to your own view of yourself that you are a child of God, traveling home as a pilgrim and traveling home against opposition so that in everything you've got to fight. If you could get this clear in your own mind and your own understanding of yourself, then you're invincible. You will know joy, nothing will be able to take your joy from you, and you will not be surprised by anything that goes wrong. And you will be able to see what kind of sense it makes in the economy of God, and to go on walking with the God who leads you through what comes along the path which leads home. I believe this is vital in sanctification to have the right view of yourself, imaginatively. And I believe that our fellowship with God, our knowledge of God, depends as much upon this as upon our theological understanding of God's ways and our own life being right. And then factor number three, which I can just deal with in a couple of sentences, is fellowship. 
Said John Wesley, with perfect truth, there is nothing so unchristian as the solitary Christian. Those of you who have been in my class will have heard me declaiming on the familiar truth of our interdependence according to the order both of creation and of redemption. It's in the give and take of the koinonia of the Christian fellowship. And that's really what fellowship is, give and take, not being too self-absorbed to give and not being too proud to take. It's in this communion and this fellowship that the work of grace goes on and our knowledge of God is deepened. There is a real truth in the thought which John Robinson so sadly mishandled that we do meet Christ if not in every neighbor, at least in our Christian brother. And that in the fellowship of the saints, we do come to know him and our Heavenly Father better. If we are short of fellowship at the human level, the horizontal, we shall be short in fact when it comes to our fellowship with the Father and the Son, the vertical dimension. Fellowship then on the human level is vital for the growth and developing of our knowledge of God. As we go on with each other, so we shall go on all the better with him. And the fourth and final factor, if this is simply restating what I said before, where is your heart? The basic devotional question, where is your heart? Who has your heart? If one's heart is entrapped away from the Lord, well, one's knowledge of God is impoverished straight away. And the test of the ongoing relationship of knowing God will be, well, there are three tests actually in First John. There's the doctrinal test and there's the life of the Spirit, but I haven't time to speak of them. I focus simply on just one of the tests, that the, the third test that John gives, the test of obedience. Sir Oswald Chambers, with truth, the measure of the Christian is not his ecstasies, but his obedience. And that's only to echo what John says, 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and following, Hereby we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. But we are not entitled otherwise to claim that we know him. For he that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. In the human family, one can do a great deal, um, or a child can do a great deal, but if the situation is that the parents are saying in the t all the time, in effect, yes, that's all very well, but I am waiting for you to do this. You know very well that this is what I'm waiting for you to do. If that's the situation in the human family, well, then the relationship between parent and child cannot make any progress until the child does what the parents are waiting for. And God is waiting for us to have respect unto all his commandments. It's as simple and as profound as that. The test of our ongoing knowledge of God is not ecstasies, not excitements, but obedience. And by this we may and must measure ourselves. These are the thoughts about knowing God which I wanted to share with you. I believe that if we keep these thoughts foremost in our minds, pray them over often, meditate on them constantly, and measure ourselves by them regularly, then you and I will indeed follow on to know the Lord, and the blessing will be ours, and the glory will be his.
I say this to us all as we scatter at, this, at the end of this end session. I say it with redoubled emphasis to those of you who are leaving for the postulate. God bless you with the fullness of the knowledge of himself. To our glory and to his praise. May we together pray as we conclude. O oh Lord our God, we rejoice that you have taken knowledge of us. And so we know you through faith in Jesus Christ. We know you because we have been known by you. And you have redeemed us and called us and adopted us and made us your children and given us a glorious destiny to be with Christ where he is and to know the fullness of the love of Father, Son, and Spirit forevermore. As we rejoice in the gift of knowledge of yourself, so, Lord, we confess that in our life of faith and obedience to you, we have so often been inadequate and foolish and failed. But we pray, Lord, that as you have called us to know you, so you will teach us to walk in the way which brings knowledge of you, and grant hereby that we who know you may become a means of blessing to others, and be used by you to bring them into the same glorious relationship. So may the blessing of Father, Son, and Spirit be ours, keeping us in the knowledge of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ. So may the Spirit in all his fullness rest upon us, doing his own work of leading us deeper into this relationship. So may good be ours and glory be yours, our Father, now and forevermore. Amen. You have reached the end of this session. A new session begins in one moment. From the Focus Study Center in Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts, the Episcopal Seminarians Conference held in May of 1978, this is an informal chat, an informal talk session with Dr. James Packer. Dr. Packer answers questions from the audience. The question is, uh, how far should we take dialogue as a means of furthering unity, should we, for instance, be content with an exchange of pulpits whereby the Episcopal minister goes to the synagogue and a Jewish rabbi is speaking in the Episcopal church pulpit, right? Right. I suppose I'd better answer this question in two parts. First, I had better say, I'm all for dialogue as a gesture of affirming the other guy's humanity and his right to be listened to. I'm all for sympathetic listening to the other man's point of view. If you don't listen sympathetically to the other man's point of view and invite him to share it with you, I think you are putting his humanity down, and I don't like that. This, of course, is a commonplace point today. I needn't spend any more time on it. I hope that you wouldn't want to challenge it. Um, I should tremble for anyone who in this day and age did. 
But having said that, second part of my answer is very mundane. In the first letter of John, we are told to try the spirits, whether they be of God. And we are told that the test is this, First John chapter 4 and I think verse 2. Every spirit that... Uh, by this we know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit which does not confess Jesus is not of God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, of which we heard that it was coming, and now it's in the world already. Now, John didn't say that about uh, Orthodox Judaism or an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. He said that about folk who, from within the Christian camp, had begun to say, in some shape or form, um, you conventional Christians who stay with apostolic teaching have not in fact gone far enough we have further knowledge which the apostles didn't give you we have a higher spirituality in which God sees no sin in us we are God's real people and if you won't come along with us we are going to leave you uh, and in fact they had left the people to whom John wrote his first, first letter and the purpose of the letter is to stabilize those people who have been bewildered and shaken by what had happened and one of the ways in which John does it is to say now remember there are tests tests whereby you may know whether it's the spirit of God who is operate, operating in when a particular teaching is given or not and here's one of his tests by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that doesn't confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is um, the spirit of... Such a spirit is not of God, but is the spirit of Antichrist. With great respect to my Jewish brothers, I approach them in the way that the New Testament does. They are folk who have failed to receive and respond to the Savior and the Gospel that God sent them. They are folk who, no doubt in good faith, because uh, when one is talking about a person who represents the faith of a community, you mustn't, uh, you mustn't question his good faith. It's not real to do so, not realistic to do so. But <coughs> they are people, I say, then, who in good faith um, reject Christianity, and I believe... Um, thereby reject the plan of God for their salvation. This is the tragedy of the Jewish community. Now, dialogue with other Christians uh, is one thing. Dialogue, however, with other faiths, um, especially when the dialogue takes the form of letting the representative of one faith and the faith which in the faith which has looked at the Christian gospel and rejected it, um, putting a representative of that faith in a position in, in a teaching position as part of the exchange and treating it as uh, an ingredient in Christian worship seems to me really to be going over the edge. I want to say this without any overtones of disrespect to Jewish rabbis, Jewish. Uh, Jewish folk generally um, as um, sorry putting it this way judging, but judging Judaism by biblical standards um, one can lament its incompleteness because it doesn't 
end where it should end at the feet of Christ but one can still admire a tremendous amount of it which after all has got a biblical root but to invite a Jewish representative to uh, in effect teach Christians how to get on without Christ because that's all that his testimony can amount to cannot I think be helpful or useful it's simply confusing Again, I don't want to question anybody's good faith. I don't want to suggest that uh, this kind of thing is on a par with um, any of the uh, uh, any of the particular forms of denial with their motive, uh, denial of the faith with their motivation that you find in the New Testament. I don't want to impugn anybody's motives, um, but you know that the New Testament is strong and sharp against folk who, for whatever reason don't accept apostolic faith in Christ and in all our practicing of dialogue it seems to me that the dialogue between Christians it seems to me that this must be held clear and steady so dialogue well under certain circumstances yes it's valuable um, what happens through dialogue between Christians is that uh, insights things that God has taught different groups are exchanged we give, we take, it's a form of fellowship. It only works effectively, of course, if it's done under the judgment of the word. But nonetheless, I think it would be very presumptuous if we suppose that because, say, we are evangelical Episcopalians or whatever, we have all the truth in the, all the truth that God has revealed and don't need to learn from what anyone else has got, though the Bible must be the judge. But then, if the Bible is going to be the judge, what are we going to say about dialogue with folk of other faiths? Well, you can see from what I've said what I would say about it. I want to say this gently, that's why I'm using a lot of words on it. But equally, I want to say it firmly. It's not for us to play fast and loose with God's truth, or to suggest that a person who rejects the central element in the Gospel, that is, faith in the Incarnation and Atonement, uh, is on the same footing in relation to God or anything like the same footing in relation to God as those whom God has brought to faith in Christ now I've said that as I say in a long winded way but I'm trying to get a balance a balance of affirmation of the persons and their good faith together with affirmation of the gospel and rejection of their mistakes and the only way of responding to the question what can we do about a situation in which churches do ask Jewish rabbis and such into the pulpit is to say well we've got to start from where we are we have got to try and mobilize opinion lay opinion and one hopes it will get through to the clergy in the end though it's notoriously difficult for lay folk to persuade their clergy of anything there's a certain stiffness of neck that often comes in and creates problems there um, but we must try and mobilize opinion um, in support of the, what's just been said namely that God has given us the gospel we didn't invent it we are not at liberty to change it nor are we at liberty to barter it um, and the church exists to proclaim the gospel make it known and bring folk to Christ um, and anything that would distract from that or appear to undermine the seriousness with which we take our own mission is to be deplored uh, at the very least if the rabbi is going to be speaking in the pulpit we can as individuals stay away that's the beginning 
that one ought to, indeed, I, if, if I were in, in that position, that's certainly what I would do. Uh, but um, I wouldn't simply stay away quietly. I would make a great uh, issue of it, not necessarily losing my temper and shouting, but uh, uh, arguing, um, arguing rather forthrightly, stating a point of view forthrightly, probably um, uh, getting the matter discussed at the vestry and so on and so on, um, because I should say there's a major principle at stake here. If we're going to do this sort of thing, it's showing, it's saying to the world we've forgotten what our Christianity is. But we have to be wise as serpents, of course, in the way that we actually, actually plan the strategy. Bless God that it doesn't happen in all our churches. The question I'm asked is to define worldliness and uh, offer some rem remedies against it. Wow, it's uh, quite a question, this. Doubly so, since I haven't read that particular book. I could tell you the author's name, but I haven't read its contents, and uh, I don't know what in particular he has to say. Uh, but let's again start from Scripture and see how we do. In the Bible, the world is spoken of from more than one point of view. Sometimes the world means this whole order of things that God created and looked at from this standpoint the world is good the world is lovely the world is God's gift to us who are part of it Then you, there, so you've got a very positive affirmation of the world from that standpoint but then at other times the word world, same word uh, is used for fallen mankind in the mass organizing and running its corporate life apart from God. And it's in that sense that we are told, I'm still in 1 John, 1 John 2 and verses, verses 15 and following, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. Now here we go with a Bible analysis. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. There the world, human life organized apart from God, is thought of as a principle and a source and a, a sort of base and a value, a, a value system to antithetical and opposed, you see, to the values of God. Well, in the analysis here, you've got three things mentioned, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Let's begin by understanding what those three things mean. The Puritans used to analyze them as, um, wait a minute, pleasure, profit, and honor. Lust of the flesh is pleasure. Flesh in the New Testament is the whole of our humanity, sometimes, sometimes viewed as created, sometimes viewed as fallen. Here I think it's viewed as fallen. The lust of the flesh therefore covers inordinate physical desires of different sorts, and inordinate intellectual lusts of different sorts, the lust for knowledge, the passion to be the expert, um, the lust always to have the answer, and so on and so forth. Well, that's the lust of the flesh. You get a pleasure, you get uh, a certain kick from all of that. Um, that's one dimension of worldliness, self-indulgence at that level. Lust of the eyes, that phrase reminds you of Eve in Genesis 3. She saw that the fruit was good to be eaten. Um, lust of the eyes is the 
is the desire to gain something which you haven't got and that of course is a desire which takes many forms according to your taste some people go for money some people go for reputation some people go for uh, uh, new and bigger houses or more and more gadgets or more and more books or more and more records or whatever lust of the eyes anyway I see it, I want it, I must have it and so one goes on heaping things up that's self-indulgence from a second standpoint we call it greed and the pride of life that phrase suggests simply um, that which is at the very heart of sin, the kind of crazy competitiveness which comes uh, a basic life ploy for fallen man. I want to be boss, I want to be on top, I want to call the shots, I want to be in charge. Sin began, remember, in the garden when man chose to play God. You shall be as God, knowing good and evil. You shall decide what's good and evil without reference to your creator and uh, Adam and Eve fell for this and man has been uh, doing it ever since and in comparison with uh, other folk um, the, the instinct of fallen human beings is always to wish one was on top um, well there it is, pride of life uh, one always wants to be further on, further up further along the line, greater than more powerful than, more significant than so I might go on, the other person pride of life. Self-indulgence in the third form. Well, apply this now to evangelicals, apply it to uh, Christian people generally today. The lust of the flesh. This is a day of permissiveness in secular morality and you don't need me really to tell you what that is doing to, uh, to morality in the churches at least among folk who don't stay with the Bible. Um, Dick Lucas this morning made a reference to homosexuality. I need only mention the word <coughs> you know what I'm talking about. Um, if I made reference by using another phrase that's in vogue these days, situation ethics, um, which invites us to work out in terms of what we think, what is the most loving thing to do in any situation, and if our calculation runs counter to what the law of God suggests, well, into the waste paper basket with the law of God, uh, your duty is to do what you think most loving in the situation. Uh, you've heard the formula, and it doesn't take very much thinking to see what sort of mistakes that can lead people into. Um, there's another form of the lust of the flesh which uh, assails, alas, um, enthusiastic evangelical people sometimes truly converted people uh, and this comes very near in fact to the problem with which, which one John is facing um, you feel that you've had a blessing you are walking very close to God he is walking very close to you wonderful things come to you from the word um, all sorts of uh, blessings attend your path uh, your heart is full of joy so on and so on and so on and you are betrayed into feeling um, that for you therefore in view of this marvelously close fellowship with God that you have um, actions which would be sin for other people would not be sin um, and well I have only I think just to say that and straight away you'll see what appalling mistakes that can lead folk into and has led folk into um, 
And it's not for nothing, I think, that old Hensley Henson, that trenchant bishop of Durham 40 years ago, um, said of the Oxford group, actually, perhaps um, scandalous, perhaps uh, libelously, but he said that he expected it to make shipwreck on the two rocks on which enthusiastic spiritual movements of this kind have made, made shipwreck in the past, sex and shackles. Well, I'm afraid that that's the way that it usually goes. These things do happen, and it's usually something to do with money and straightforwardness and finance, or something to do with sex and using it in God's, in, in God's appointed way that trips folk not using it in God's appointed way that trips folk up. I think that evangelicals today are in danger just because of the permissiveness of the society around us. This is one obvious form of worldliness against which we need to be on our guard because the word of God is actually just as clear about these things as our ancestors thought it was a hundred years ago. But society around us isn't clear and is trying to persuade us that in fact the scripture isn't clear. But it is here. It is. Then there's the lust of the eyes. Uh, the monastic way in the Middle Ages involved holy poverty. There are not many Christians in the West today who know very much about holy poverty. Um, I see evangelicals very much exposed to the lust of the eyes, wanting to get things. We live in a technological age. It's very easy to get hold of things. Um, and I think that we're in great danger from the pressure of our time that we simply conform to what the secular world is doing and uh, set ourselves to heap up possessions, um, a good house, and then as we get on in the world, a better house, um, uh, one car, two cars, three cars, four cars, more cars. Well, I need to say anymore. You know how it goes. In a society, a society that is affluent, a society in which affluence and possessions are a status symbol, as they are in our society, it's the easiest thing in the world for us to get swept away with the feeling, well, if we're going to count for Christ in this world, we have got to observe its standards uh, at this point. And so we as evangelicals make it our business to become well-heeled and um, as well-off possession-wise. As, uh, <coughs> as, as secular folk aim to be. And I think I do detect this sort of greed amongst evangelicals sometimes, certainly my side of the water, and I don't like it when I see it. And the answer to that, I think, is to remember what's said in Proverbs chapter 29 or 30, where a man, Agar, is found praying for not too little, not too much, but just right. Uh, don't expose me Lord he says to grinding poverty lest in despair I blaspheme you equally don't, ex um, don't expose me to affluence lest I forget God um, here it is give me neither poverty nor riches lest I be full and deny thee and say who is the Lord or what does he matter I can get on without him I've got uh, plenty of money I've got, I'm doing alright or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Is it? Yes, it's Agur, and it's Proverbs uh, 30, verses 8 and 9, if you want the reference. These are good words, I think, for evangelicals of this time. 
Um, pride of life? Well, evangelicals in my country, at any rate, are morbidly concerned, you know, to be respectable and to be influential. Influential, I mean, not through letting the gospel loose and letting the gospel be influential, but by being evangelicals who are pulling strings of power here and there. They make me a little anxious. I'd better not go on with this. But these are forms, obvious forms, of worldliness which I see threatening evangelicals today, and I think we do well to be on our guard against them all. I don't see amongst us, not everywhere at any rate, um, that same, uh, what shall I call it, heavenly-mindedness is the word I'm going to use, that same heavenly-mindedness which I see in some of our ancestors whose biographies I've read, and particularly which I find in the Puritans, um, great spiritual teachers, the Puritans, most of them, most of them Episcopalians, um, they were not as black as they're painted. Some of them came over and uh, colonized New England. Others of them stayed in old England and suffered a good deal for the Christian testimony. Um, <coughs> they, they, you see in them the spirit of Moses, who counted the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. You see in them the spirit of the disciples, who, when the Lord said, follow me, left everything in order to follow him. And that, it seems to me, is a spirit which has got to be there in our hearts if our service of the Lord is going to be wholehearted and if we're going to be at the Lord's disposal for him to lead us um, in the way that again and again he will want to lead us against the stream in a way that challenges the lifestyle of folk around us in paths where the witness is born and the testimony is made just by Christians being different. Well, again, um, I'm starting to preach a sermon. I mustn't do it. But I think that uh, this is the authentic ethos, the authentic outlook of the disciple. And in these days, just as in past days, it's important that Christians tune into this and that this be their attitude of mind. Um, may I, at the risk of sounding yet more sermonic, remind you now of what's, what Paul wrote at the beginning of Romans 12. Be not conformed to this world, he said, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Dick Lucas referred us to that text this morning, but uh, we scarcely had time to quote it and think about it. Well, think about it now. Don't be conformed to this world. Philip's translation of those words goes, don't let the world squeeze you into its own mold, which is precisely what's meant. But, alternative, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And as we read the scriptures and think about the lifestyle that's uh, enjoined in the scriptures, well, by the grace of God, the transformation will take place. And our churches will impress by being different for Jesus' sake. And I really think that this is a great part of our calling. <coughs> question, is there a tension between God's omnipotence and the fact that Christ had to die on the cross to obtain forgiveness of our sins? Um, my answer is no, no tension at all, because the necessity of our Lord's death has to do with the moral character of God, whose nature it is to be just, 
it is God's way, it's an expression of his holy nature, that there should be retribution where there's been transgression. Um, God, in his own wisdom, satisfied his own justice by diverting the retribution that had to be onto a substitute. He spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. That was how he expressed his omnipotence. And I mean that phrase, that was how he expressed his omnipotence in our redemption. It was his own sovereign action, yes indeed, he planned it from all eternity. But it had to be what it was in order that he might be just. Your scripture for that is John is um, Romans 3, 26, I think, 25 and 26, where Paul, in a very compressed passage about the cross, where he's talked of men being justified through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, that is, by his sacrificial death, to be received by faith, then goes on to say this, I'm reading my RSV, this was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. The point is this, that though God had in the past forgiven sins, and that was marvelous, no adequate basis in justice for that forgiveness had yet appeared. But now one has. We see now how it was that God was able to forgive sins in the past. Christ had been appointed to die. And so Paul goes on, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous. Righteous in the sense in which the first two chapters of Romans have been talking about God as righteous, namely as the God of righteous judgment. You get that phrase in chapter 2 verse 6. Uh, sorry, chapter 2 verse 5. God's righteous judgment will be revealed, says Paul. To prove at this present time that he himself is righteous in that sense, judging sin, and that he justifies him who has faith in Jesus. So justice is done, and we sinners who trust in Christ go free. And God justifies the ungodly. And God justifies the ungodly justly. Ungodly, yes, because you see, the true believer goes to the Lord saying, Lord, I come to you as an ungodly sinner. I come to you as one who has no merit, no claim on your mercy. I come to you as one whose life has been tainted one way or another all along the line up to this very moment. But God justifies the ungodly on a basis of justice. Um, perhaps I could add this. Thomas Aquinas and various folk after him, including godly Bishop Westcott, who wrote excellent commentaries on Hebrews and John. Um, sorry, I said Aquinas. I should have said Don Scotus, not a medieval theologian. Um, these guys uh, played with the idea that it wasn't necessary for, it, it wasn't necessary for um, Jesus to for the Son of God to become man and die on the cross to put away our sins God could have put our sins away on another basis I'm sorry, back to where, you, where I was Aquinas of course in his own way did say that too just as these other fellows did but it seems to me that the scriptural answer to that is, lies in the wording of Romans 8.32 remember, God spared not his own son 
that delivered him up for us all. And it's part of an argument. He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us everything? Everything he has to give. And the argument is that God, having given the greater his own son, will surely give also the less. Because any and every gift that he has to give us now, now that he's given Christ for us, is less than that original gift. Less in value and less in cost to himself. Well now, if you suppose for one moment that it really wasn't necessary for the Father to send the Son to put away our sin, if you think, I mean, that the Father could have forgiven us without the atonement and on some other basis, if you think that his moral character would have allowed him in omnipotence to do that, well then straight away Romans 8.32 falls to pieces. Because God has now done something that he didn't need to do. He spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. He didn't have to do any such thing. Instead of it being a glorious thing to praise God for, that when he saw how much our salvation was going to cost, he still paid that price. The whole thing becomes a sort of, a sort of charade, which is hollow. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a show put on. God took needless trouble... He saved us in a needlessly complicated and a needlessly painful and a needlessly costly way. Well, it's hard, if you allow yourself to think in those terms, it's hard anymore even to worship God for the cross. The cross becomes a superfluity. No, there's no road this way. The, the, the more you develop the thought, the more um, grisly it comes to sound. It had to be this way. And because we know that it had to be this way, um, we know that justice has been done we know that our justification is founded on that justice having been done we know therefore that we are absolutely secure for eternity it isn't just that God for the time being at least turns a blind eye to our sins perhaps he'll change tomorrow um, perhaps, he'll, uh, perhaps he will enter into judgment with us then after all no it isn't that it's that the debt has been paid justice has been done it's inconceivable now that God should judge us for the sins for which Christ died as a substitute. So I'm going into the doctrine of the cross a bit because it is an expression of omnipotence. And it is, in fact, when you understand it, a very glorious exp expression of omnipotence. But if we link up omnipotence with the thought of arbitrariness, and maybe God could have done it some other way... Um, well, what we're actually doing is tearing the very heart out of the gospel message and tearing the heart out of Christian assurance as well and making God seem as a God without a moral character, in fact, or at least without a defined moral character. And, well, this is just trouble upon trouble. Theological dog, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> nice to see him here. <laughs> Hello. Do you feel that liberation theology is faithful no. The question is, do I feel that liberation theology is faithful to the word? I think that liberation theology is the product of um, paying careful attention to certain events in the history of redemption, and in particular the exodus from Egypt, without paying comparable attention to the words that God spoke in order to explain what the redemption of his people from Egypt was all about. God spoke many words on this subject and made it plain that Israel was saved to be his covenant people 
Uh, there's nothing secular about this salvation. It isn't, it isn't in general terms God taking pity on the poor. It is in particular terms God laying his hand on the seed of Abram with whom he made his covenant in order to bring them into a land where they could, they could worship him, learn his ways, develop a godly culture and so be prepared corporately for the coming of the Messiah who was to be at the seed of Abram and to be the saviour of the world. That's what liberation from Egypt was all about. Liberation theology tends to stop short of saying, look, God saved these poor slaves out of Egypt. Um, that's his kindness. That's his generosity. And so um, today it will certainly be his purpose to save uh, the poor Italians out of the hand of the Christian Democrats or the poor uh, Latin Americans out of the hands of uh, the tycoons of their own or other races or whatever. Um, but you see, the the this, this line of thought stops short, um, stops short at a point which means that there's no decisive parallel at all because this is thought of simply as a secular enterprise, God identifying with the with the needs of secular men. I'm not suggesting that God doesn't. God is a compassionate God, for sure. Uh, the Bible makes that plain. And those who oppress the poor in any context do not get God's favor. The Bible makes that clear. But if one thinks specifically of um, redemption from Egypt as a kind of paradigm of the uh, the alleged Christian duty to seek liberation of the captives and the uh, Italians and the Africans and the Latin Americans and whoever today, well, one is forgetting the redemptive significance which that salvation from Egypt, from, uh, Egypt had. What I'm saying is, let me say it just one more way before I close. God didn't save the Israelite slaves from Egypt simply in order to set them free from tyranny. He saved them from Egypt for godliness. He brought them to himself. That's how he puts it explicitly in uh, Exodus 19. Let me back up what I'm saying by quoting Exodus 19. The Lord says to Moses, where is it? 19. Uh, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Exodus 19, verse 4. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all peoples. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. This is what I brought you out of Egypt for, for that life, the life of keeping my covenant and obeying my voice. Well, this is my problem about liberation theology. It seems to me that at the heart of it there's a confusion. A confusion between um, illegitimate parallels taken from redemptive history in the Bible and on the other hand uh, the truth that God does not approve of any man oppressing any other man because all men bear his image and therefore all men merit respect from their fellow men and not exploitation. Uh, what the liberation theologians are after, uh, at least a good deal of it, um, I could support from that second position, which is the truth. But when they bring the exodus into the story, I have to part company with them. I say they're failing to distinguish things that differ. 
and they are trying to divert our attention from world evangelism, which is the church's real business, to this uh, misconceived program which identifies the church's mission as working for secular liberation. In the ecumenical movement, this line of thought has made an appalling amount of headway. It's a sort of uh, ideological tyranny in the Christian world, which one must hope will soon be a thing of the past. But at the moment, it's going strong, and it seems to me the only thing one can do is to say, if that's how you're going to, if that's what you're going to uh, represent to the world as being the true Christian mission, we can only say no. Nine, as Karl Barth once said, on another the- in another theological controversy, and fight it as hard as we can. Well, this is my view of liberation.